Lord God, we do thank you for this day that you've given to us, Lord, for uh, the beauty of it and just for the opportunity to be in the word, Lord. And I pray that we would never underappreciate your word, God. That is just a tremendous blessing that we have such free, easy access to the scriptures, to sound teaching. And Lord, I pray that we would take advantage of that, that we would absorb all the knowledge of you that we possibly can, that we would grow in depth, that we would grow in our understanding. Lord, that you would be molding and shaping us by renewing our minds into the image of Christ. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would impact us this evening as we get into your word and we seek to discern the truths that are in there, Lord God, that can be applied to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm. Hi. 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 Is Mickey Moss coming? Mm. All right. So last week we finally got into the new covenant. We got into um, the way that Christ secured the new covenant through His blood. That it was ratified. On the cross, when Christ died, his perfect obedience and his sacrificial death inaugurated, ratified the new covenant. And so we established that, that it's we are secure in that, that there's a certainty because the work is finished. Uh, there's no, you know, it's a pure covenant of grace, it's a completed covenant. We're going to be talking a little bit more about that tonight. Um, but tonight we're going to really be talking about what the new covenant is, um, what it does, who's in it, what are its blessings, because like I said last week we were establishing how the new covenant was ratified, how it came to be, now we're going to talk a little bit more about what it actually is. So I'm going to read from Romans 8, this is going to be another time where we're going to be going all over the place in the New Testament. But I'm going to read Romans 8, um, 1 through 4, 12 through 17, and 28 through 30. Um, this is a, an important explanation of the new covenant and its blessings. Paul is you know, sort of at a climactic point in the letter to the Romans where he is um, expressing and proclaiming just the you know, radical nature of the free gift that we've been given in Christ and like how it affects our relationship with God. So we know we're going through Romans Sunday mornings. We know the early portion of it. It's talking about our alienation from God, then how we're reconciled to God. And Romans 8 is a lot about the reality of that reconciliation. Uh, so Romans 8, beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Then down to verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And then to verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we're just kind of using that as the jumping off point. But you'll see, you see even from that text 
the manifold blessings. He talks about, you know, our life in Christ, our adoption as sons. He talks about the new spirit that we've been given, the new ability to put to death the deeds of the flesh. He talks about our election and justification and glory and all the rest of it. And those are all things that flow from the new covenant. So tonight, a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about tonight are, is stuff that we know and that we've heard before, you know, about justification, sanctification, and all the rest. But I hope that we're thinking about it in terms of the covenant realities, that these aren't just doctrines that, you know, arise out of Scripture and that were taught, and they're not just personal experiences, but these are objective blessings that flow from God's covenant in Christ. These are realities that can't be undone. When the author of Hebrew talks about um, the our full assurance of faith in Christ Jesus, that's what he's talking about, the covenant. So all of these blessings flow from the reality of the new covenant, which fundamentally is Christ's inheritance. That's what it foundationally is. When we talk about the new covenant, it is Christ's reward for his obedience mediated to his people. The new covenant is Christ's reward for his obedience to the Father that through him is mediated to us. Right? That's why it's a covenant of grace. Because we don't do anything to earn it. It's Christ's work, Christ's reward freely given to us. That's foundationally what it is. And we've talked throughout this study um, about how God uses covenant to establish kingdoms. And that's what we've been looking at throughout. So the covenant with Adam, the, the covenant of life, that established the kingdom of creation and that law order. The old covenant with Abraham, that established the kingdom of Israel and then the new covenant establishes the kingdom of God under the rule and authority, the dominion of Christ. It is through the new covenant that the kingdom of God is constituted and is manifested in creation. And so it's, again, an objective reality. It's not like the new covenant is some doctrine that we came up with to explain you know, what the scripture teaches. The new covenant is a true, necessary, binding, legal structure for the establishment of the kingdom of God in creation. And we're going to have a, you know, a study focused on the kingdom of God um, a little bit later. But it's through this covenant that God establishes his kingdom in creation that undoes the curse of Adam. Does that make sense? Feel free to ask questions or, you know, interrupt at any point. So it is the new covenant that establishes that kingdom, that realizes its authority, its blessings in creation. And so what are the blessings of the new covenant? So chiefly, the, the primary blessing of the new covenant is union with Christ. It's being in Christ. And that's the that's like the main subhead under blessings of the new covenant. And then after that, all the rest flow from that. But that's the core reality. So again, if the new covenant is Christ's inheritance mediated to his people then we necessarily need to be joined with Christ if we are to be members of that covenant. So the primary blessing, the chief blessing, is being in Christ. Union with Christ is the blessing of the new covenant. So how do we become joined with Christ? So we're going to look at that a little bit, but it is, it's by... It's by God's work. It's God's election of his people and then him filling them with his Holy Spirit to cause them to be born again. That's what unites us to Christ. And that's, again, why it's a total covenant of grace, because it depends on God choosing his people and then doing everything necessary to save them. God alone joins us to Christ. God alone makes us the bride of Christ who are united to him by covenant. And so 
That's the thing that changes our covenant status before God. Um, we're going to talk a little bit later on tonight about Christ as a federal head. Um, and so if we're joined to him for under his headship, then we receive everything that he earned. And I think the marriage metaphor is instructive. If you think about, you know, uh, marriage, when the bride and the groom are united, when they become one, when there's that covenant bond that's formed, everything that belongs to the husband, the head, becomes the wife's. Right. There is that, you know, true union and oneness where, you know, everything that he had becomes hers. It's the same way with Christ. When we are covenantally joined to Christ, everything that belongs to him becomes ours. So we very truly are the bride of Christ. Um, and this is also what makes our status certain. Um, you know, we've talked on. And we've talked a lot about the Old Covenant, how there was always that necessity, that requirement of maintaining obedience in order to maintain blessedness. But our status in the New Covenant as covenant members is certain because we're joined to Christ. He already achieved everything. We talked about that last week. There's nothing more that needs to be done. There's nothing that can be added to Christ's work. There's nothing that can be taken away from it. And so if we are united with him, we have absolutely everything that he earned by right, by covenant. This changes our status before God. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more later. But if we go through the New Testament, this is... Pretty much consistently what Paul and the other New Testament authors appeal to when they talk about, you know, the, the, the security that we have in Christ, the blessings of being Christians. He's constantly talking about being in Christ. So we're going to kind of rapid fire through some scriptures here. You can try to keep up turning. Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So you see that union. We are united with him in his death and in his resurrection. And there's certainty that goes along with that. Um, Romans 8.1, which we read, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just keep noticing that language, in Christ Jesus. Um, Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, Paul referring to that union with Christ, that we very truly really have died with him and been born again, been raised up with him. Uh, continuing Galatians chapter 3. Verses 26 through 29. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither female nor male. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Again, in Christ Jesus. Um, Ephesians chapter 2. Verses four through seven. But now, I'm sorry, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. All that same language. All of it depends on being in Christ Jesus. Just a couple more. Colossians 1, verses 13 through 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us 
with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So consistently, and there's many more that we can go to and will go to. There's going to be a lot of kind of flipping through and looking at scripture itself. Um, but consistency, consistently you have this appeal to being in Christ. And that's what secures all the blessings that we have as Christians. Being in Christ Jesus, being covenantally joined to Christ, being one spirit with Christ, having his spirit dwell within us, that is the chief blessing of the new covenant, and it mediates and assures all the other blessings that flow from it. So I want us to understand that, that being in Christ is the primary thing. It's the cornerstone, and it is... um, it's a covenantal status. It really does change our standing before God. It is a um, it is a, a true standing. It's a reality of our relationship to God being in Christ. It's something that God has done, which can't be undone. Do you have any questions about that before we move on? All right. So aside from being in Christ, you have a ton of other blessings of the new covenant. The first one we're going to talk about is justification. Um, And justification is the legal declaration of God that a person is not guilty. It's a person, it's us being made positionally, perfectly righteous before God. And it's important to understand that, you know, we talk about justification as a legal declaration by God that changes our position before him. What this is simply is the full forgiveness of sins, sins past, present, and future for Christ's people, that the moment we are born again into the new covenant, the moment that we are joined to Christ Jesus, we are declared by God to be not guilty, permanently, forever, not guilty. That's justification. And it's important for us to understand, again, thinking about this covenantally in terms of these are blessings of the new covenant, um, it requires no works. It's absolutely unconditional. So, you know, we've, in comparison, um, that's why this is fully, truly a covenant of grace. There is absolutely no works necessary. The declaration, when God says that a sinner is not guilty because we are in the new covenant, we're in Christ. That means that God makes this declaration before any work of sanctification have happened, before we have done anything righteous, before we've done anything good, before we've even repented of any sin, the moment that God causes us to be born again, we are declared not guilty. That's it. It doesn't depend on us in any way whatsoever. And this is because justification is a legal imputation of our sin to Christ and his righteousness to us. That's what we talk about, that double exchange, that the moment of justification, God takes our entire sin debt, that whole bill that we've rung up of sin for our entire lives and that we ever will run up, he takes that whole thing and credits it to Christ on the cross as paid for, and then takes all of Christ's perfect obedience, all of his merit, all of his righteousness, and he credits that to us. He replaces our sin with Christ's righteousness. So the classic passage for this, 2 Corinthians 5.21, you know, we probably know without even turning there, but we'll turn there. Um, For our sake, He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's it right there, that in Christ Jesus, our sin is credited to him. He is made sin, even though he's righteous, and we are made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's the act of justification. That is legally Christ taking the debt that our sin earned 
and paying it in full and us legally receiving his righteousness. It happens by being in Christ. It is a covenant blessing, a covenant promise, fully grace, depending not at all on us. Colossians 2.14, which we just read, is another one that, you know, uh, he was our, you know, he's forgiven us all our trespasses in Christ Jesus. He did this by laying them aside, nailing it to the cross. He set our sin aside in Christ because it was paid for. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us. Colossians, Paul talks about it as a record of debt. It's an outstanding payment. It's something that, you know, our outstanding balance, rather, something that we owe. But it's been laid aside, not by, you know, magic, not because it was made to disappear, but because it was paid for in Christ. It was nailed to the cross. His death removed our sin, satisfied justice, and so fully paid the, the debt that we owe. And it's this payment is applied to us the moment that we're in Christ. You can think about it in terms of like a massive financial debt. And the moment that you're in Christ, all the funds from Christ are wired to your account. They're there instantaneously. The debt is gone. It's vanished. And you have all the infinite righteousness of Christ in your account. That's what it's like. And it happens the second we are in Christ, the second that we are born again into the new covenant. And this is the only way that God is able to forgive sins while maintaining his justice. That God, as a righteous and holy God, justice must be satisfied for sin. And because Adam broke the covenant of life in the garden and earned death for all of his offspring. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later. But because of that, all that sin, all of that curse must be paid for or else God is unjust. God is unrighteous if he doesn't um, receive it. If he, if he doesn't punish sin, God is unjust. And so the only way that we're able to be reconciled is if our sin is paid for in Christ and um, and then we receive his righteousness. The only way that our sin against an eternal God can be paid for is either by our eternal death or by the death of the eternal God. Does that make sense? You guys following? Okay, good. Um, the son bears the penalty of sin himself. Galatians 3, another place that we can look at, um, verses 10 through 14. We read that for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be anyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the fact that Jesus Christ bore the curse of our lawlessness, our disobedience to the law, which earned justly a curse from God, which earns wrath, that Christ took that on himself by being hanged on a tree, hanged on the cross. He became a curse for us and absorbed the penalty in full. And so we are able, we are in Christ alone, able to be declared, to be declared by God legally not guilty. And so um, it's important also to remember that although this uh, justifying grace is absolutely free to us, it costs... It, it came at a great cost to Christ. It cost Jesus his life. He suffered the wrath for it. So it's not like our sin is without cost, but the cost is paid in Christ, and so it comes to us in a manner of free grace. And so because of the reality of justification, of this legal declaration, the second that we are in Christ, the moment that it happens, which only God knows, if we die, then we go to be with the Lord, because that's what it's all about. 
are we guilty or are we not guilty? Ultimately, that's what matters when we stand before God. Are we represented by Adam and his sin or by Jesus and his righteousness? And so even if we die before having done one good thing, even if we die before any sanctification has happened in our lives, if we are in Christ like the thief on the cross, then we are with the Lord because we are fully not guilty. Um, it is an absolute blessing of the new covenant, a blessing of free grace. But it's not the only blessing of the new covenant, although it is one of the primary ones. Do you guys have any questions on any of that? All right. The second one we're going to talk about is regeneration, which, um, you know, a lot of theologians who talk about our salvation, you know, some will say, like, what comes first, regeneration or justification? They happen at the same time, essentially. And that's God knows when he does these works. But regeneration is when we are born again. It's when we are given a new heart that loves God and that submits to God and that is able to rest in Christ by faith. And this is where, you know, faith comes in. So, you know, it's said that we are saved by grace through faith. So the regeneration is a grace from God, which gives us a new heart that exercises faith in Christ. Does that make sense? And this is, you know, really the reality that's promised in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, where God says, I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'm going to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Regeneration is the fulfillment of those promises. It's the blessing that God said that he was going to bring in this new covenant order that he is going to fill his people with his spirit and give them a new heart, a heart that loves him, a heart that obeys him, a heart that submits to him. Again, we can look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. We read, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Notice again that language of being in Christ. That's what it's dependent on. If we are in Christ, then we objectively are a new creation. Because if we're in Christ, that means we've been given a new heart, a new spirit. And that is going to lead to us living as a new creation, but we are recreated by God from the inside out by virtue of being in the new covenant. Again, this is regardless of any works done by us. It has nothing to do with anything that we do to earn this regenerated status. We are given a new heart. This is being born again in Christ Jesus. We go from being dead to alive. We go from hating God to loving God. Romans 8 um, verses 9 and 10, it says this, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. What's he saying there? He's saying that when the Spirit enters into us, when we are given that new heart, we are truly made alive. We go from a status of being dead to being alive. And even though our bodies are still experiencing the curse of the fall, we're going to talk a little bit more about that later, although that's a reality, we still, he says, the Spirit is life. We are regenerated. We are resurrected in the heart, and that is working its way out. And that's the next blessing of the new covenant to talk about, is that of sanctification. So we have justification, which is legally being declared not guilty. That happens the moment we're born again. We have regeneration. That's God giving us a new heart, giving us a heart that loves him and that exercises faith in Christ. And then we have sanctification, and that is the new covenant blessing in which this new heart given to us by God, bears fruit. It is the fruit of our regeneration, that reality of regeneration uh, showing up in a transformed life. So this is where we start to get into the actual, you know, outward application of the Christian life. 
um, where God, he's done this reality, he has declared us not guilty, we're in Christ, we are saved, right? That is our salvation. We are given a new heart. But that new heart doesn't just happen in a vacuum, or it's not something that's theoretical. It actually is a, a resurrection from the inside that necessarily has to show up in our lives. It will manifest itself in our lives, and that is sanctification. And this also, you can trace it back. This is a new covenant blessing that fulfills the promise of Jeremiah 31, where God says, I will put my spirit within them, and I will write my law on their hearts. That God is going to put his law within us. That instead of it being this external standard that we're trying to outwardly conform to, God, by regenerating us, by resurrecting us and giving us a new heart, that also puts his law within us. So now righteousness comes from the inside out. That's what sanctification is. And so um, as this law takes root from the inside and works its way out, we are being conformed outwardly more and more to the image of Christ out of true conviction for our sins and out of true love for Christ. And so again, it's not just this empty, dry legalism where we're just trying to conform to a standard, but it is God has changed us and that change is working itself out in our lives out of a true hatred of our sin and a true love for Jesus and a desire to be like him. We're going to do another kind of rapid fire round here, beginning in John 14, Gospel of John, chapter 14. And verses 23 and 24. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So Jesus saying, Those who love me, the only people who can love Jesus are the ones who have been given a new heart to love him. Those who love me will obey my commands, and those who hate me will not obey my commands. Back to Romans, Romans 6, verses 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. So he's talking about that reality that you have died with Christ and been raised up with him. So stop sinning. Present your bodies, your members, your life to God in righteousness. Um, again, in Romans chapter, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Um, another one, Ephesians 2.10, says that we are, um, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. Again, the credit of being to God, that God has transformed us. He's created us new in Christ Jesus so that we might walk in these good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Philippians 2 is similar. Um, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Colossians 3 is another one. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. 
And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Again, that call to be conformed to the image of Christ, to live out the transformation that God has wrought in our hearts. And the last one we'll look at, 1 John chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. We read this. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Sorry, I lost my place. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So again, John there saying that we are going to know and recognize who God's people are, who are the people of Christ by their life. That if God's spirit, if God's seed abides in our hearts, then that is going to manifest itself outwardly in our lives. Um, that we, the, the fruit that we bear in our lives outwardly, it demonstrates the transformative work of God's spirit in us. It testifies to God dwelling in us. The fact that, you know, when we are being conformed to Christ, when we are obeying, when we're keeping God's law, when we're living out the transformation that God has done in our hearts, it testifies to God's grace, his mercy, and his power to take dead people and make them alive people in Christ Jesus. Does that make sense? So it is um, outward. You know, we do bear outward fruits necessarily as Christians, but there are a few things to keep in mind. And this is where it's just so easy sometimes. The, the line between legalism and holiness is so thin. And I think that any Christian who is seeking holiness is going to be accused of legalism from time to time. Because we do take the law seriously, and we should. Um, but we also want to be careful that we're not giving merit to the accusation of being legalists. Because it is easy when we talk about sanctification to try to turn it into an outward standard that it only matters if we conform to it outwardly and it doesn't matter where our heart is. Or we give lip service to justification, but in our practice we make it seem like our salvation really depends on our sanctification. It really depends on our works and how we're doing. So. It's easy to fall into that, and it's equally easy then to fall into antinomianism, though, to downplay the law. And so to guard against legalism, say, well, it doesn't really matter if your heart's in the right place, and if you're trying, or if you at least say that you're trying, you know, you're saved by grace, and so the works don't matter. The works do matter. They don't save us, but they matter. So a few things to keep in mind as we're trying to kind of like, you know, find this balance with sanctification. First of all, our salvation, our status as being justified, as being not guilty, does not depend on our sanctification in any way whatsoever. Justification, as I mentioned, happens the moment we are born again. It is by grace completely. It's not that God saw any merit in us. It's not that God looked and saw that we would do well as Christians. It's not that he chose us based on some foreknowledge. God elected us. He chose us while we were still sinners. He chose us as sinners, and he declared us before we did anything good. He declared us objectively and forever not guilty. So our justification depends in no way on our sanctification. So if we make slow progress, even at times painfully slow progress in sanctification, even if we backslide at times and fall back into sinful habits that we had formerly conquered and had victory over, that doesn't mean that we're in danger of losing our salvation. 
If you are in Christ, then you cannot be out of Christ. You can never lose your salvation. And so that's the first thing to remember with sanctification. Your justification does not depend on it at all. Um, you know, we don't, it's not as if you know, we're declared righteous and then we try to maintain that status. That's Roman Catholicism, where you're justified at baptism, you're made righteous, but then your whole life you are maintaining that status. That's not biblical. You're justified once and for all, not guilty, that's it. Our works don't maintain that. Do you understand? Second thing, though, to keep in mind is that this is, sanctification is hard work. And I think sometimes there's a misconception where we think that for, you know, if you're really saved, then it just kind of happens. Like it just sort of comes naturally. All of a sudden, one day it's going to click and you're just going to want to obey and it's not going to be a burden at all. You know, because Jesus does say his commands aren't burdensome and that's true. However, because we're still in this body of sin, they're going to feel burdensome to us. And so... Obedience, conformity to God's law, seeking to walk the way that Christ walked, it takes discipline. It takes self-denial. The language of the New Testament, Paul talks about, you know, it's rigorous. Paul talks about disciplining his body, conquering his members. He says to, um, you know, put to death, to mortify your sin. This is hard work. It's not like this is just something that sort of happens and wells up in us. And it also doesn't mean that we don't have to actively resist the temptation to not obey. That's a real temptation. And I think sometimes, sometimes Christians can think that sanctification or obedience to Christ is only legitimate or only, you know, not legalistic if it happens like naturally and it's not hard for us or you know what I mean? But no, it's hard to obey. Even as seasoned Christians who have been going along the road of sanctification for a while, obedience is still hard. And so to, to think that it's only valid if, you know, it comes very naturally and our heart's totally in it and it's not at all like forcing ourselves to obey no, sometimes we do have to force ourselves to obey. So that's the second thing. So remembering first, our righteous status doesn't depend on our works, doesn't depend on it. However, sanctification is hard work. Third thing to remember, sanctification is a covenant promise. That's what we're talking about tonight. Um, and so everybody in the new covenant will be sanctified because we're in Christ and sanctification ultimately is a work of God's grace. And so every single person, God's promise in the new covenant is that Christ is going to be the firstborn among many brethren, that we are going to be made like Christ. Everybody in the covenant will be conformed to the image of Christ. And so we can be very confident that our labors of sanctification are not in vain, that even though maybe slow, painful progress and frustrating progress, it's not in vain. God is going to conform us fully to the image of Christ, and new covenant members then necessarily will produce noticeable fruit. doesn't mean that we do it perfectly or consistently or fully, but we will produce fruit. So then the question arises... If there's no progress whatsoever, if there is no fruit, if there's no conviction over sin, if there's no repentance, if there's habitual sin that's going unfought, unresisted, and unconquered in the Christian life, then it indicates that that individual isn't truly in the new covenant because a covenant promise is sanctification. So where there's consistent unrepentance, where there's not conviction of sin, where there's not the battle to obey. It's not always a winning battle every single time, but it should always be a battle. If that's not present, then that's an indication. That's where we're told to examine our hearts to see whether or not we're truly in the faith. So sanctification, it is important. It is necessary. Holiness, obedience to God's law is important, and it is a covenant promise that we will be conform to the image of Christ. Do you guys have any questions on any of that? All right. Next one. 
Another new covenant blessing is adoption, being made a son of God, going from being an illegitimate child to a full, true heir of God, a recipient with Christ of everything that he's earned. We're made full partakers of absolutely everything that Jesus, as the only begotten son, earned. He's the only begotten son. He earned an inheritance, and we as adopted sons share in that inheritance we're given the name of Christ. We're given the status as legal sons and so legal heirs. We become children of the new creation, legitimate citizens of the kingdom of God. That's adoption. Um, in, in John's prologue, he says that to all who did receive Christ and who believed in his name, they were given the right to become children of God who were born not of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. So we are given the right to be heirs of God. Again, this is a legal standing that we have before God by virtue of being in Christ in the new covenant. We become legitimate heirs of God's eternal covenant blessing. Um, in Romans 8, we read it, he also talks about this reality of adoption. Um, he says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. For the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so part of our sonship, part of our adoption is that intimate familiarity with God. He says the spirit of adoption is in our hearts and we cry out, Abba, Father, we cry out with uh, with familiarity to God. And that's the beginning of that restoration of true fellowship. You know, that's the other new covenant promise that's made in Jeremiah 31, that they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And ultimately at the consummation, the dwelling place of God is with man. All of it is to get back to that status of having intimate fellowship with God that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden. And the spirit of adoption is the first fruits of that, that we are able to address God now, not as a distant deity, but as our Father in heaven. And so we have that familiarity and also that confidence. He says that we don't have the spirit of fear and of slavery, but of sonship. And so there's a confidence that we're not going to lose our blessings. We're not going to fall out of favor with God because he is a father who loves us unconditionally, who has adopted us as his sons, and who he's not going to disinherit. Turn over to Hebrews 12. It talks again about this reality of adoption and of sonship. And, that, and it should be a great comfort to us even as we go through trials and struggle and suffering in this life, that God, because he has adopted us as his sons, we belong to his household. We are heirs with Christ, and there's nothing that's going to cause us to lose that inheritance. In Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 7, we read, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have been, are participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So the author of Hebrews is making the case that, yes, we suffer with Christ. Just like in Romans, he says that we suffer with him, absolutely, but we suffer not as rebels under judgment, but as sons who are being disciplined. And we suffer this discipline without fear of being disinherited. Remember, that was always the threat of the old covenant, that God's people, if they persisted in unrepentance, and yes, God was long-suffering and he was extraordinarily patient, but if they persisted in sin, idolatry, unrepentance, then ultimately they would be disinherited. They would lose their covenant blessings. But we don't have that fear in Christ. Because we have this spirit of adoption, we know that the rod of God's discipline is not going to result in ultimate disinheritance. That God's discipline to us is meant to bring us to repentance. It's meant to give us uh, contrition over our sins. And it also ought to 
confirm our legitimacy as his sons. He says that if you don't get disciplined, then you're an illegitimate son. You're not a real son. But if we're actually disciplined, it means that we're loved and that God's chastising us in order to, you know, spur us on in our sanctification to make us more like Christ. And so when suffering and difficulties that arise in our life lead to repentance, that shows the blessing of of adoption in action because we're you know, we're not afraid that God has left us or abandoned us, but rather we're receiving his discipline, recognizing that we deserve it, that we're sinful, repenting of that sin, and then being restored to that glorious fellowship with God. Does that make sense? And of course, the resurrection of Christ is the highest example of this kind of blessing, right? Because the you know, the, the resurrection was Christ being disciplined for the sins of his people all the way into the grave, and yet his sonship is confirmed by the resurrection. His soul was not abandoned to the grave. He was not allowed to see ultimate final corruption. He was chastised for his people's sins, but he wasn't disinherited. He was resurrected in glory and confirmed to be the Son of God. And so that's the pattern that we follow, where even as we are chastised and even unto death in this life, we know that we will not lose our inheritance in Christ. Then we have the blessing, the new covenant blessing of preservation or perseverance. So this is the assurance that all those who are truly in the covenant will not be disinherited, that we will receive every blessing. They will all come to full realization. That's the blessing, the promise of preservation. And again, this goes back to being in Christ, and it goes back to the new covenant being fully a covenant of grace, a completed covenant in Christ, a covenant that can't be added to, and a covenant that can't be undone. Those who are in are in. You can't fall out of the new covenant because it doesn't depend on us. It depends on Christ. You've got to hammer that point home. It's all the completed work of Christ. John 10, verses 27 through 30. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Um, Flip over to John 17. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, speaks again along these lines in verse 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. You have Christ interceding for his people to the Father, saying, Father, keep them, guard them, don't let them fall away. And then in John 10, like we said, Jesus saying, no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. My Father is stronger than all of them. Galatians 2, um, beginning in verse 20, which we read earlier, and continuing on into chapter 3, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? I meant to stop in verse 3. Either way. Um, But you see that there, Paul's saying that, you know, are we so foolish as to think that we began with the Spirit, do we perfect ourselves with the flesh? Of course not. The Spirit completes the work. He will bring that work to completion. Philippians 1.6 says the same thing. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. That those who are in Christ 
will receive the full realization of every blessing. We cannot fall away. Uh, Romans 8 is, you know, kind of the crucial passage for this. Beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That There's no more to be said than that. There is absolutely nothing. If we are in Christ, nothing will undo that. Nothing can remove that. A covenant promise is that God's people will persevere to the end. But then that, of course, brings up the question of the people who profess to be Christ's people and even show forth some of the outward appearances of being Christ's people, but then they leave the faith, they apostatize, they deny the faith. And again, this, because we know that it is a covenant promise, that all those who are in the covenant will persevere to the end, we know then that those who deny the faith, or who continue to profess the faith, but just live in consistent, unrepentant sin, that they are not truly in the covenant and never truly were. That's what John says in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they have been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained, they are not all of us. So what he's saying is that those who ultimately deny the faith, who live in unrepentance, whose lives are marked by disobedience to God's law and disdain for it, that they are not truly in the covenant. They have made a false profession. Again, this is where you look at the fruit, you look at sanctification, and you look at the, you know, the is there the heart of repentance, contrition over sin, conviction for it, or is this, you know, just living in sin while paying lip service to the name of Christ? And then, um, quickly, because I know we're running a little bit short on time, uh, the blessing of resurrection and glorification. This is the completion of the covenant, the completion of our redemption, that we are made fully like Christ. In 1 John, he writes that, um, we will be made like him because we will see him as he is. We will be conformed fully to the image of Christ. Um, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll just look at that one briefly. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 47. The first man was from the earth, the man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And so ultimately, a promise of the new covenant, sure and certain, is that we will be joined to Christ in his physical resurrection. That we will be resurrected in our bodies. We will dwell with him in the new creation. We will enjoy eternal, intimate fellowship with God forever and ever. That is 
the promised, ultimate, final realization of the blessings of the new covenant, our physical, bodily resurrection and glorification with Christ. Those are absolute certainties for those in Christ. So all of these flow from that fundamental union of being in Christ. And then briefly, we just want to talk about the federal headship of the new covenant. Every covenant has a federal head. And if you want to find out who's in the covenant, you look at the federal head. Are they attached to them? So in the old covenant, Abraham, all of his physical offspring born of the flesh were automatically in the covenant. You didn't have to do anything if you were a Jew. If you were born in Abraham's family, you were in the covenant because he's the federal head. With Adam, the covenant of life made with Adam, all of Adam's offspring are in the covenant. If you are born, you are in the covenant of Adam. You're in the covenant of life and he's guilty. He is sin, and the curse is upon us. Don't have to do anything to be in that covenant. The federal headship of the new covenant belongs to Christ. And so it's only those who are in Christ, who are under his headship, who are in the covenant, who are covenant members. And so just as being born um, call. You know, Causes us to be in the covenant of life with Adam as our head, being born again, this supernatural second birth, this work of grace, is what causes us to be in the new covenant with Christ now as our federal head. If you're still in 1 Corinthians 15, just look back at verse 21. We read, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. So you have this comparison of Adam and Christ. Makes clear Romans 5 does the same. You can look at that later. Um, And, you know, my dad just preached on a lot of Romans 5 and this covenant reality of being in Adam or in Christ. But 1 Corinthians 15, it makes clear that Adam was a type of Christ and in many ways a first Christ, a representative of the whole human race. He's a covenant head of the entire human race, and Christ is the only other potential covenant head, ultimately. And that's what it comes down to. All the other covenants, whether we talk about, you know, family covenants with the father as a covenant head, whether you talk about, you know, the old covenant with Abraham, or any of the other ones, ultimately, every single person will stand before God represented either by Adam as their federal head or Christ as their federal head. Adam is guilty. Adam is sinful. And if Adam is representing you, then you are going to suffer the eternal consequences of Adam's sin. Conversely, Christ, righteous, and if he represents you, all of that belongs to you. So that's what counts. Who is your representative? Um... Our ultimate covenant standing before God depends on whether we are in Adam or in Christ. Turn finally to Hebrews 7, and we'll finish up here. Hebrews 7, because this is what it all is about, and this is why the new covenant can't fail. In this conversion, we'll talk about this more when we get to the signs of the new covenant, but this is why, ultimately, we're Baptists, because... We believe that it is those who are born again in Christ who are in the new covenant and thus should receive the sign of the new covenant. That's the only the only way to be in the new covenant. It's not by having parents who are in the covenant, but it is by being born again in Christ, being joined to him. And it's absolutely certain the blessings of the new covenant, the promises that we went through tonight, cannot fail because they depend on Christ. Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for him. The reason why the new covenant cannot fail and why only those who are evidently in Christ 
belong in the new covenant is because Christ is the head and the mediator of the covenant. That if Christ is the covenant head, if Christ is the covenant mediator and intercessor, then his work cannot fail to be applied to us. In these offices as head, mediator, intercessor, he perfectly represents us to the Father and he perfectly communicates all the blessings of his finished work to us. Christ, it all flows through him. So he's standing there between us and the Father. He is pleading our cause to the Father on account of his righteousness and he is taking all of the blessings and benefits that he's earned and communicating those to us. It flows through Christ. He is our head, he's our mediator, he's our representative, and his mediation cannot fail. And if we say that it can, if we take the position that somebody who is really, truly, actually in the new covenant can fall away and can be truly disinherited, then we are diminishing the work of Christ and we're making our covenant blessings dependent on our works. They're not. They're dependent on Christ's works. It's God's elect who are the new covenant people. And those whom he has chosen will be born again. Those who are born again are under Christ's headship. And those who are under Christ's headship will receive everything that his finished work has earned. Do you guys have any questions or thoughts on any of that? Are you sure? I know there's a lot. So if there are any questions? I'm still digesting. Okay, that's all right. I'll take questions all week. All right, let's pray, guys. Father, we thank you for your true, abundant, free grace. And Lord, there is just, there's so much to the Christian life. There's so much to the discipline of the Christian life. There's so much for us to be paying attention to right now, so much for us to be focusing our attention on. The Lord is just so, there's nothing like the refreshment of revisiting once again the free, absolute, marvelous grace of salvation. Lord, that we cannot do anything to earn standing before you, Lord God. You have done everything and you've done it completely divorced from who we are, Lord. We have no righteousness to offer, but you chose us because you loved us and you make us lovely and you make us righteous. God, I pray that you would please help us to bear the fruits of the new covenant, Lord God. Help us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Help us to work out our salvation and be more like Christ and help us to do this with the full assurance of faith that our standing before you cannot be diminished, it can't be changed, it can't be taken out, Lord God, for you have secured us in your Son. So let us worship you and live for you and be spent for you, Lord God, and we approach you with confidence and with joy and thanksgiving and worship. God, we praise you in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.